want to add my Christmas greetings to you all today, praying for you and your families that uh, this might be a, a sweet memory-making weekend. And I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices to the Gospel according to Luke. I'm going to be giving our attention to Luke chapter 2, particularly verses 8 through 14 in a moment. I was, I was talking shop, so to speak, I guess. What else do you call it with a, another pastor friend? We both agreed that preaching classic Christmas texts has a unique challenge for us. Uh, it, it, it sort of reminds, we were talking together, it reminds us of what it's like when the, uh, the flight attendant who stands up just prior to take off and gives safety instructions, like no one, this is no exaggeration, zero anybody listens. <laughs> and um, you know, it's just because we've heard those same words, we've heard that same story, we've heard that, the same instructions so many times that they just no longer have much effect on us. I, I think that might be part of the reason why there's just a constant production of new Christmas devotionals, just looking for some way to make it fresh. Um, but like the, uh, the time on the airplane that I remember, uh, the flight attendant saying, just please pause for a moment and pretend that you're listening. <laughs> and uh, so perhaps you find yourself in the place where that old, old story of Christ's first appearing is so familiar, it just no longer lands on you with wonder and astonishment and soul-stirring effect, the effect that it is worthy of. So just pause and pretend that you're listening and, and we'll have a, a meaningful time together this morning. Whether we fully sense the profound wonder of it, the doctrine of God become man, namely the incarnation, that's, that's the theological word we use. It is, whether you feel it or not, a mind-bending mystery. Just an example. The Old Testament prophet Micah wrote, But you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, and, and this is the phrase, who is coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. In other words, the mystery of the birth of Jesus is not, it's not merely that he was born of a virgin, which in and of itself is a wonder. The miracle of God become man is intended to proclaim an even greater miracle. Namely, that the child, the one born at Christmas, who as a, a, was a person who existed from of old, from ancient days. So how, how do you wrap your, your brain around that? The, the glory revealed in an ancient infant is a God-man. And it's so fantastic, so spectacular, so powerful, it is meant by the Lord to stir our hearts to wonder and to hope and to worship. And so, so there are songs, 
Songs and songs and songs, spirit-inspired songs for this Savior that celebrate this mind-bending, glory-revealing mystery. And so we have looked at some of those songs. Mary's song, known in history as the Magnificat, a song that praises God for his magnificence. And we have looked at Zechariah's song, known as the Benedictus, a song that blesses God for visiting and redeeming his people. And today we're giving our attention to the song that the angels sang, the song history has entitled Gloria in Excelsis Deo, Latin for glory to God in the highest. And so I want to invite you, please turn to Luke chapter 2, and if you're able, would you please stand, follow along as I read verses 8 through 14, and we're asking the Spirit of God to bring supernatural illumination. Luke writes, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were feared Filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. And as your word, O oh God, we are trusting, believing that as you have breathed it out, you have inspired this text, that in it we meet you. We don't just hear words, we hear you speaking. We don't just see a picture created through a narrative, we see you and all that you have done. And we pray in this moment, Lord, for supernatural hearing, supernatural seeing. We pray that you would accomplish your purpose for this text by calling forth out of our hearts joyful praise to your great name, especially on this holiday when we celebrate the birth of our great Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So Luke spends the first two chapters of his biography of Jesus lingering on the account of Jesus' birth. And his purpose in doing so is so that, that we would marvel at the mystery of God become man. And he highlights and he punctuates these two chapters with, with four songs, 
songs of praise to God for the coming of the Christ. Luke means for us to feel something. But there's, there's another theme running through this narrative that magnifies the wonder of Christmas, and that theme is that what's happening in Jesus' birth, what's transpiring at this point in history is not simply the convergence of a bunch of random, unrelated circumstances that just happened to coincidentally come together right then and right there. Rather, we are clearly meant to understand and again, be affected by the reality that what takes place in these two chapters, it's part of a plan. What's happening here is the beginning of the climax of a larger storyline that was spoken of by prophets promised in Scripture, revealed and recorded centuries earlier, and ultimately was shaped entirely in the heart and in the mind of God before history even began. So the, the glory of the birth of the Son of God is that it, it happens precisely according to the purpose and providence of God. Don Carson writes, Jesus didn't rise out of a contextless situation. God didn't choose him from any random family, nor did he just drop in from out of nowhere. Jesus was connected intimately with what God had been doing with Israel through ages past. Indeed, the story Luke tells about Jesus isn't a new story, but rather the continuation of one reaching back thousands of years. And so, just let that cast a tint on your thinking about the familiar events that are described here. Consider the providential coordination of countless strands of minute details related to the circumstances of dozens of people's lives in order for all of this to happen the way it happened, when it happened, in precise fulfillment of the way God meant it to happen. So, so what you see, for example, in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, is how God ordained the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem in accordance with the prophecy I just read a moment ago from Micah chapter 5. And is it not astounding that God ordered the details of the lives and circumstances of two seemingly ordinary people living in Nazareth in such a way that when the time came and in order to fulfill His purpose and fulfillment of his word, they are brought by virtue of no small, no small inconvenience, no small discomfort to Bethlehem that first Christmas. And listen, God does it by, he does it by putting it into the heart of Caesar Augustus that all the Roman world should be enrolled, each in his own town at that particular time. And that's amazing. Do you ever feel like on account of some hard thing, some 
unplanned for inconvenience or some unanticipated and frustrating adversity that you may be experiencing. Like that's just, that's all that's going on. Just, you're just living right there at that plane, not seeing anything over it or under it. Just another day of problems. And so it's, it's pretty common, is it not, to feel disheartened or perhaps overwhelmed when all these big things are happening with these big people's big people in the world and their lives, while unimportant and insignificant little me, I'm just, I'm just doing life with all my headaches and heartaches on some random whatever dead-end street. But, but that's the thing that we have to see here. The deep and unshakable and life-giving substructure of the birth narrative of Jesus is but another evidence that God is accomplishing all things in accordance with the purpose of His will. All the massive political forces, all the ginormous complex industrial systems of the world, they're just simply being guided by God. And it's not merely for their own sake, but for the sake of the little people like the Marys and the Josephs who have to be gotten to, from, from Nazareth to Bethlehem in order to be blessed by their heavenly father. All that surrounds the birth of Jesus and the awesome mystery of God become man is meant to stir us to celebrate and to rejoice in the hope that the entire course of history and the entire storyline of our personal lives, each and every day, including our health, including our vocation, including our family, including our finances, every last detail is following the sovereign decrees of our Father in heaven so that we might be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that God might shape us and mold us for good works in which He has prepared in advance for us to walk. Therefore, I believe that, that God means to say to each one of us here this morning, take heart, whatever it is that your life looks like in this moment, in this season, Whatever you're walking through, take heart this Christmas and take heart every day because according to Isaiah 46.10, God says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And, and it's, it's in light of that very fundamental overarching assumption, namely that God is ultimately in control of all that happens in the world, that he is the author, that he's the finisher of this great drama that we call history, and that he designs and disposes everything that happens in the lives of his people for the accomplishment of his purpose. It's in light of that. <laughs> it's in light of that that I believe we can begin then to recognize and be rightly affected by God's ultimate aim, and goal in the incarnation. So that puts things in context. And the question then that I want us to consider this morning is, according to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, what is 
God's ultimate aim? What is his ultimate goal in becoming a man? And the answer to that question is embedded in the refrain of, it's really one of the most familiar portions of the Christmas story, thanks in part to the Charlie Brown Christmas, and perhaps more significantly thanks to one of the most dramatic performances of all time, a massive multitude of the forces of heaven declaring in a way that we can only imagine, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or in other words, God's goal in becoming man is to display his glory for the joy of his people. Or to say it another way, God's purpose in the coming of Christ is to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God and that a people would be redeemed who will enjoy his glory forever. So that's my outline. God's purpose in becoming man is one, to display his glory, two, for the joy, three, of his people. First, God's purpose is to display his glory. Glory is it's one of those words, right, that Christians use a lot, but aren't really sure how to define it exactly and precisely. Most commonly, Scripture uses the word glory to refer to or to explain the fact that the attributes of God are being made visible. God's not just loving, He reveals Himself as loving. God isn't just powerful, He reveals Himself as powerful. God is not just merciful, He reveals Himself as merciful. The glory of God is the attributes of God made visible, put on display. Another way to say it is, God's glory is God's greatness gone public. When Luke chapter 2 verse 9 says the glory of the Lord shone around them, it means that the, the brightness of God's infinite perfections were on display in that moment in such a way, really, that human flesh and blood could barely endure. It's like getting too close to the sun and, and knowing you're not safe. And so the shepherds, they're, they're experienced outdoorsmen, right? They, they could handle themselves out in the boonies <laughs> where it was dangerous, where there was things that could hurt them, people that could hurt them. But the King James Version says these men who could handle themselves were sore afraid. In other words, they were filled with fear. They were, they were terrified. We've registered throughout the series how the incarnation reveals God's His greatness and His perfections. In the mystery of God become man, infinite humility, infinite humility and condescension are put on display. The, that is the distance that God, Christ traveled from being very God, a very God, creator of the world, putting all the galaxies in place with his fingers, to being a man. It's just unfathomable. But he traversed that distance 
to become not just any man, he, he became a Jewish man, and not just any Jewish man, but a first century blue-collar Jewish man that ended up dying a criminal's death under trumped-up charges. No mere human being could have stooped so low. That's glory. Glorious humility and condescension. In the conception, the conception of, of that which is divine in the womb of a, of a virgin girl is a display of infinite power. So from the perspective of man, things like pregnancy apart from sperm are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That's glory. In the fulfillment of a thousand-year-old prophecies regarding God become man, the the perfections of divine faithfulness and preciseness are put on display. God's word never fails. He always keeps his promises. That is a display of glory in guiding and directing and coordinating a multitude of providential circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ. Absolute sovereignty is put on display. That's glory. And in the birth of a Savior who is Christ the Lord, that is the God-man who lived this perfect life fulfilling all righteousness and who died a wrath-absorbing and sin-canceling death for the salvation of all who would entrust themselves to Him, we behold the most dazzling display of the of really what's the crown jewel of all God's infinite perfections, namely His mercy, that is glory. Perfections, attributes on display for all to see. And so when a million angels sing glory to God, they mean to God alone belongs the glory. In God alone is the substance and the fullness of glory. And through God alone do we behold the display of infinite glory. When a million, million angels sing praise to God, saying glory to God, they, they mean no one and no thing is more worthy to be receiving of honor and exultation than God and God alone. And when a million, million, million angels exclaim and proclaim glory to God, they are fulfilling the aim and the purpose for which all things have been made and all things exist and for which God, a very God, became flesh and blood and dwelt among us, namely, the display of God's glory. For what end? The display of God's glory is for the joy. For the joy of God's people. It's for our joy. Our pleasure. When Mary greeted Elizabeth, her, her elderly relative, Luke 1.44 says, The baby in my womb leaped for joy. And then when Elizabeth, Mary's elderly relative, is filled with the Holy Spirit and blesses Mary. Luke 1.46 tells us that Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, 
my Savior. And then at the birth of John the Baptist, who would prepare the way for Jesus, Luke 1, verses 67 and 68, records his father Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit and, and his prophecy, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. That's joy. And when the angel appears to the shepherds on that hillside at night and announces the birth of Jesus, in Luke 2, verse 10, he says, Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy. And after the announcement of Jesus, the Savior, the Christ, a multitude of the armies of heaven suddenly breaks out in praise, singing, Luke 2.14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's joy. And after the shepherds go and check it out, and they, they find the baby in the situation, Precisely as they had been told, Luke chapter 2 verse 20 says, they returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Because glory is God's greatness put on display. You think they weren't just a little juiced up by what they had just seen and heard? The result of beholding infinite beauty, infinite perfection, infinite glory typically results in terror. <laughs> but for God's people, the end is pleasure. And since we naturally praise what gives us joy, the Spirit of God's people, the spirits of God's people rejoice in the glory of God and they praise the glory of their Savior. And that's God's gift to us. Listen, if, if God means to give us the greatest, most soul-satisfying gift He can, what would that gift be? It would be Himself. It would be this display of Himself. It would be this experience of Himself. Because God's purpose in becoming man is to display His glory for the joy Thirdly, of his people. Now, the, the reason that I say that the aim of God in becoming man is to display his glory for the joy of his people is because of the second line of the refrain in Luke 2.14. You see this? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or I say it another way, the angels sing, praise to God, peace to some. Praise to God, peace to some. Peace for whom? Peace for those with whom he is pleased. John Calvin writes, Christmas doesn't bring peace to all. Yes, we would expect John Calvin to say something like that. <laughs> but we know it, that it's true because of another Christmas text. 
John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How can that be? How, how could it be that not all receive him? John 3.19 says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So in the midst of all this praise and exultation and noise and light on that sheep-covered hillside, there is a somber note in the angel's song that not everyone enjoys the peace and joy of the Lord. Only, only his disciples, only to his disciples, only to those who receive him and follow him are the ones that Jesus said in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So, so who are the people who enjoy peace that passes understanding and that is unspeakable and full of joy. The stories of Mary and Zechariah have already, be, have already been instructive. So let's just rewind and review it again. According to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5-7, through 7, Peter writes, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. You remember, you remember how Luke drew our attention to Mary for her joy and her humility? It's because... God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And, and how is it then that we would express our humility before the Lord? Is it not by forsaking self-reliance and according to 1 Peter 5, 7, casting our anxieties on Him? <laughs> That's the first step toward enjoying peace with God. It's pouring, when He pours out on those whom He favors, Peace, it is as they are repenting of their self-reliance and telling Him everything that makes them feel anxious. I need you, Lord. I need you. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here it is. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, so peace is for those with whom God is pleased. And God is pleased with those who humble themselves and pray, casting all their cares upon Him. But there's another crucial element to pleasing the Lord, and that is found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, where it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And the key to unlocking this treasure chest of peace and joy we learn from Zechariah and from Abraham is entrusting ourselves to the promises of God. 
saw this last week, but again, Romans 4, 20 to 21. No distrust made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So loved ones, if, if our joy and our peace is disturbed, unsettled, it's certain that we're relying on something else or someone else besides God and what he has promised to satisfy our souls with comfort and joy. And so Paul prays, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound with hope. And when we trust the promises of God and experience soul-satisfying joy and peace and comfort in all that He is for us in becoming man in the person and work of our Lord Jesus, then His, his purpose is fulfilled. He is praised for His glory. And we, His people, are filled with joy. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Let's pray together. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in and be born in us today. We hear those Christmas angels in this text, the great glad tidings that they tell. Come to us and abide with us, Lord, our Emmanuel. Amen.